Welcome to the Show Up Podcast, a place where we explore leadership and how it's showing up for us in the world in which we work, and a space for you to explore what leadership means in your context, how you show up, how you turn up to be the best leader you can be in the world that you work in today. This week, we noticed a little trend that occurs when people and businesses and organisations think about change. They think about adding things quite often. But we pose the question, how often do businesses and leaders consciously declutter and take things away when they think about change? I'm not going to lie, it was an exciting conversation, really enjoyed it and made us all think about how we could slimline our own worlds to make not only what we do simpler, but help the people we lead simplify what they do as we think about change. So as you enjoy the episode, think about how decluttering might help you in your world. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Good afternoon, listeners. Welcome to another episode of the Show Up Podcast. I'm Derry, and I'm here with Graham and Jamie. Graham uh, is stuck in a car in the depths of Cornwall somewhere and has set up a podcast studio in his car. It's quite impressive. It's actually uh, a van. It's a, it is a camper van, so I've got uh, all the facilities that we'd need to cook, clean, um, and all the other things you'd want. So. You can multitask um, whilst you're recording the podcast. Are you expecting this to be a particularly long episode? Yes. Oh, have meal uh, yeah. I've got hot dogs available. Uh, I've also got some popcorn. And... <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. I'm not so well prepared. Uh, but anyway, here we are to talk about a term we came up uh, Did we come up with this? I'm not sure. But the term that we've been using, organizational bloat. And this isn't organizations that have eaten too many hot dogs. This is organizations who have started things and started things and started things and found it much, much harder to stop things. And what, as a leader, there's a real tendency to start stuff all the time. Mm. And what we have observed in our experience as, as leaders and as coaches of leaders and supporters of leaders, that there's a real mismatch a real imbalance between how easy it is to start things and how easy it is to stop things and we wanted to explore that a little bit as why that might be mm. why are people so good at starting new things and kicking stuff off and so poor at stopping things and by uh, when we talk about stopping things i think we're talking about consciously stopping things on fairly large scale as opposed to my personal speciality which is stopping things because I just get distracted and start something else new. So it's a conscious stopping of things. Mm. Or maybe not. Maybe it's both. Let's see. Let's see where we go. I don't know. Yeah. Well, the first reaction. Well, Jamie, go on. Go on, mate. Well, I was going to say, this is not really, This is a, although it's going to be an interesting one to explore, it's not really a new topic, is it? Because I guess this organisational bloat issue has been around for as long as I've been professionally involved in any business. And I remember... Uh, a story that a guy who was responsible for writing the instruction manual for how to be a manager and a leader at a particularly well-known global bank, uh, telling me once that there were 39 processes defined, so 39 processes and policies defined on how to start something new for that bank anywhere in the world. But there was not a single documented process or policy on how to stop anything. 
And it, this was, by the way, an organization that suffered from exponential organizational bloat. And I think probably the two were very strongly correlated. And that was about 20 years ago. Um, so this is, this is a chronic issue, is my opinion. And that sounds like a very formal process, right? There's a very formal process there of if you want to stop something, these are the steps you have to go through, except we haven't defined those steps. So you can't formally stop something because we don't know how to make decisions to stop something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. This is um, this is a very clearly documented set of instructions, what it was at the time, on how do you um, make sure you start things with the right kind of governance, but then no, no explanation of how do you switch it off. Yeah, I was just I was smiling because we've all worked in organizations, right? We all worked as individual contributors, operators, people who got the job done. Do you ever remember the C drive or the M drive or the L drive? Yeah. For your department <laughs> and and how much of a mess it used to actually look, no matter how many times someone tried to tidy it up. Yeah. I, I appreciate your use of the past tense there, but I don't know that it applies to me. <laughs> uh, our shared drive is still an absolute mess. And that is despite me having experienced that so many times that when I started my business, one of my big things was we're going to get organized and we're going to stay organized. Has not happened. And it is never <laughs> a big enough priority to go back and clean all of that stuff up and organize it because there's a million other things that we need to start doing instead. Um <laughs> I'm, yeah, Jamie, well, your let's story. Just, let's just explore that a minute, if we can, because I want to understand what impact do you think, as a leader in your business, that's having on your people, if any impact at all. I think the impact actually is that it enormously reduces collaboration because yeah. everybody figures out their own way of organizing their files and storing things. Yeah because there isn't really a system and we're a small team right like there's I mean, we have a bunch of freelancers and trainers and things but at the absolute outside there's maybe 15 of us hmm. that are adding things in and out and copying things and what needing to access files and the what i've observed recently actually because we've changed how we run things a little bit people can't find the information that they need and they save things in places that I'm not looking for them in. And it, so it works for me fine because I know where all the things that I need are. And it works for Gabby fine because she knows where all the things she needs are. And it works for Sam fine because she knows where all the things she needs are, etc. What it doesn't work is when Gabby needs something that I know where it is. And it's not necessarily filed in a sensible place so that ability to collaborate to solve problems to work efficiently i suspect is hugely compromised so you probably could put a case together for saying investing in sorting this out mm. is a lock for productivity and stress reduction actually because it's pretty stressful when you're digging around on an end drive trying to find a file that you know is there somewhere mm. that is the question do you need to start a new process to do the cleanup mm. yeah Maybe that's it. Add to the bloat. <laughs> so, yeah. what, 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 what's behind the tendency to find it easier to start something rather than stop things? Because it, it kind of it's, it's, it seems to be counterintuitive to me, without necessarily recognizing. In fact, I do recognize that I'm as guilty as the next person in terms of that is my tendency as well. But 
surely it takes more effort to do something than to just stop doing something else. Well, so why do we tend towards doing that then? Well, that's partly why I make this distinction between the the petering out of something versus the conscious decision to stop. Because the petering out still contributes to the bloat. Because in theory, there's still a project that's live that people are supposed to be doing something on that not everybody yeah. knows has been stopped. There's probably still resources been allocated and money being spent. I think that's a distinction, like starting something and pushing it through to a completion versus starting something and then people getting distracted and stopping and not really pushing it through versus this conscious decision to stop something. As to why it's easier to start, I guess for, for me, uh, part of it is it's just a more positive thing to do. Like if you're looking to contribute in your role, often what that means is, oh, there's all this stuff we can do. I'm going to figure out how to persuade people to give me the necessary resources and permission to go and do those things. It takes a different type of mindset, I think, to be, say, the way I'm going to add value is to stop a bunch of stuff. Mm. Although that can be quite appealing, I think, but it it takes a different headspace, I reckon. Graham, you look like wondering. Yeah, I suppose what's coming up for me, I I go back to childhood and think, how did we all feel when we got a new toy? You suddenly forgot about the old toys and you moved on to the new thing that was in front of us. And I can't remember the name of the psychological phenom that goes on in that thing, but we, or, you know, which cognitive pattern is at play, but we do tend to on a practical level, like new shiny toys rather than old toys. And we never really are very good at laying old toys to rest. You know, did we all say thank you to that toy for what it did for us at the time that it helped us, you know, take the move from Duplo to Lego? You know, Duplo was invented because Lego was too small for small hands to grab hold of. So did we say thank you to the Duplo for helping us get the grips with something that then became all part of some of our childhoods, right? We we as a as a a human as humans, I find that we're very we're very poor at dealing with loss and the movement away from something. We're always generally more happy to sort of move towards a new future. So I think that's plays a contributing factor to the idea that we experience the situation. There's some bits that are good in it, there's some bits bad, and there's some bits that are, provide opportunity. And we're designed to take advantage of the opportunity. Now, sometimes that can be done with existing processes in place, or other times we can rewrite the rule book and create a new process and do stuff from there. So they're just some of the first thoughts that come up, as I think, through it. Yeah, um, that natural phenomenon, that natural tendency, the shiny, new, more exciting, more interesting, without forgetting to close down the old, that, that does resonate. I've seen that just about everywhere. I think one of my original business partners used to describe that syndrome in me as being the magpie syndrome. Uh, you've got something shiny to go after, Jamie. It's a new client, a new opportunity, a new idea of doing things and a new way of thinking. Great, brilliant. Have we have we finished off the last stuff? No, but it's not as interesting anymore. Should we shut it down? Well, no, well, we might come back to it. So I'm a bit of like an ideas hoarder, but I'm I have a natural tendency to go towards the shiniest new one that actually stimulates me um, in that kind of start of a new process way. Um, 
actually, I do remember I ran a fairly large global transformation program uh, once um, that was about a fairly seismic shift in how people operated in a particular business from multiple locations into one location, creating something new. And actually, at the start of that program, if I remember right now, we said there's only one way we're going to really show that we're delivering value from doing all this, that everybody's then going to point their finger out and go, yeah, that was worth it, was if we switch stuff off. And we actually had to set up quite deliberately, and it was quite uncomfortable. And on the grand scheme of things, required more effort from a stakeholder management over the course of the program, which was the demise work stream. And we had to we had to be very very pedantic about what are we switching off and what's the evidence it has been switched off um, in various different locations around the world. Things like production of reports, production of data, so on and so forth, to show that actually the new operation was the only place that uh, was doing something or was the single source of um, the stuff that people were then using to generate insight and so on and so forth. So I'm just wondering whether actually. The natural tendency is one thing, but the lack of anybody's recognition or maybe the lack of awareness of how much effort it is to actually go against the natural tendency is also um, something that's a bit off-putting when you realize that it's going to take an effort to stop doing this. And I thought stop doing something was going to be easy, and actually it isn't. So you steer away from it. I wonder also whether there's something around the, natural human bias towards optimism here Mm. which is the optimism of grasping an opportunity or creating value in some however you might think about value in the organization you're operating in of of doing things of positively doing things there's almost that you know the mindset of if you're stuck in traffic it's always really compelling to turn off and go somewhere where it looks like you can move forwards even if your sat nav's telling you that's not the quickest route to get there. If the quickest route is just to sit here and grind it out, that shiny new thing where it feels like we're moving forwards is that there's a sense of optimism around that. Mm. I think yeah. that people are therefore drawn to the excitement of doing things that are new. I've seen this in my consulting clients. One of the one of the big things that we often do is keep management teams focused on the stuff that really matters because you get this tendency to say, well, that's just BA, that's business as usual. It's taken care of. It's ticking along. And you're like, well, yeah, but it's 90% of your profit. So maybe we should talk about that. But everyone's distracted by the shiny new thing. I was working with a university once and they they had two courses that generated about 80% of their profit. And all of the conversation in the leadership team was about launching a new business school. And meanwhile, those two courses were going backwards. But it was the shiny new thing was way more exciting. We're, we're going to change the game of this business by launching all of these new things. And it's a, it's a, yeah, I use, the, I use the word optimism. It's There's an excitement. There's an energy around new things that I think draws people in. And it takes a very certain type of mindset to to get your energy from the the neatness of decluttering and closing things down. Those people exist. Mm. I mean, there's a reason Marie Kondo has become hugely popular in helping people declutter their wardrobes. And the effect, if you go through that 
that work to declutter your life in some way is often really positive, but it, it's hard for people to get started because mm. it doesn't come with that kind of excited. It, it feels difficult and painful and hard to shut things down exactly in the way you described, Jamie. Yeah, and I'm just wondering, I was, I was thinking about this as well, and there was some research done quite a long time ago. Um, somebody, I think Ferrari, a guy called Ferrari from DePaul University, I, I think I remember seeing something about one of the reasons that the research that he was doing, uh, particularly in the professionals, professional environments, is that people don't ever really want to completely finish something because they're a bit fearful of being evaluated. So no, it's not the only reason, obviously, as we've just been talking. It's you know, it takes focus and attention, and you know, a particular potentially kind of mindset uh, that's wanting to be tied to her. But is there a possibility that actually, if you kind of leave it partly done, undone, or never really switch it off, no one ever draws any conclusions about was it worthwhile? And I guess you're not putting a line in the sand saying. I've done this thing to the best of my ability and I can't make it any better. So I'm done. Yeah. That's scary, right? So, well, this is as good as I can make it without some kind of time constraint or other. If it's allowed yeah. to just run, then I, yeah, I totally get that. Like, well, there's always more I can do. There's always more I can improve on. Yeah. So some, it's something about a fear, some, some form of fear, worry, anxiety, perhaps until you've forgotten about it. Maybe there's a time frame. <laughs> that is oh that thing that we did two years ago no one's worried about it now just switch it off yeah so but there's a there's a sort of halo effect that whilst it's still present enough where you still feel some ownership for it that oh switching it off uh something might go wrong that person over there might still need it i might be judged on whether it was worthwhile you know that's sort of that's a another underlying um sort of cor- current of why does it become more difficult to actually then draw that line in a, mm-hmm. as you said in a conscious and deliberate way as opposed to letting it just fade fading takes a long time as well i just wonder whether actually what we're seeing is anybody in our listener group or anybody entering that golden age of leadership has probably been conditioned to be better at starting mm-hmm. and actually probably has a natural tendency towards starting as well and therefore blimey if they don't then start to think about the development of the muscles, about how to complement that with something which might not be their natural tendency, their natural mindset, or their attention to detail, and even overcoming fear, then they could contribute to bloat rather than being somebody who helps to free up time to focus on the things that matter by helping to shut down stuff and add that to their portfolio of leadership capabilities. I wonder as well, that part of that emotion is actually tied into the reality of um, crystallizing a loss, crystallizing lost time and crystallizing lost money. So there's a, there's a wide, there's a widely known concept called sunk cost fallacy, which is we've, we've put all of our loads of time and effort and money into this thing. So we waste all of that if we just stop it. I, I think that is, that is a total fallacy. I, I truly believe that you should look at where you are at and the best path forward with the resources that you've got at any moment in time. There is a very real switching costs thing, the hero stopping costs thing, which can mean actually on a purely financial basis, the right decision is to just let something drift on. 
I think that massively underplays the psychological cost of that bloat and that sitting there. So to give a concrete example, I was working with a retailer, one of the big household name retailer, um, and they had a business in one of the regions of the UK that was underperforming and had limited potential. And they, they were very much in a rock and a hard place because the cost to exit that business with all of the leases they had on their retail units was astronomical. So it made no economic sense whatsoever to exit the business. But equally, the potential upside from investing in that business, it made no economic sense either to really invest in getting that business to a place where it needed to be to be kind of on a par with the rest of the the portfolio. So they ended up just stuck with this business that had all this potential and a few people cared about it, but they couldn't make the numbers add up enough to convince people to invest there versus elsewhere. And it just kind of drifted along. And that was like, that that's rational from a purely yeah. economic perspective. That's rational. But from a number of other perspectives, you might look at that and say, well, that's still occupying the minds and the conversations and the meeting time. And there's there'll be all these internal communications channels that are talking about this thing and people doing all of these things that ultimately is not really adding that much. And maybe that is a case where leaders get stuck and they've got themselves in a situation for whatever reason that it's very hard to extricate yourself from. And I'm wondering, how do you really evaluate the cost and the impact of all of that time and energy stressing about an unsolvable situation, do you just leave it running? Do you take the hit on closing it down and say, well, yeah, that's expensive, but at least it clears it out and we can move on? For me, I think there isn't a straight answer to it, but even what you brought up there is leaders need to create that time to start thinking through those things. And to start look at both, you know, the factual performance. What's the data saying? We're investing X, we're returning Y. You know, look at it a very pure metrics driven approach. But then there's also say say some of the emotional cost that sits within those things too. And, you know, what they mean for a business. Now we're not talking about getting to like the Kodak moments of this world um, that we all know and love. Uh, those stories in the business text and i think organizations these days are getting better to let things go quicker you know fail fast learns learn quick type mentality but i i think leaders need to start knowing noticing that this is what they have to start thinking through as leaders it's not just how do we get the job done activity and creating the space to do that for there. Another lens that comes up for me is to actually think through some of the psychological patterns that might be going on for people at that point of change. You know, there's three core fears that all humans have expressed. Fear of death, fear of abandonment, and fear of failure. Jamie, you talked about it earlier. Is it a fear of failure if we don't see something through to completion or it never achieved what we intended to or it never quite realized what its potential had when we designed the problem, the solution to the problem. Is that tapping into people's fear of failure or as to why they don't want to let something go? Do they feel abandoned themselves because they've had purpose in a team that they've never had before as they deliver a project? 
and moving away from that project that's contributed to some of the bloat starts to trigger off that fear of abandonment from, you know, purpose and things like that. And is something stopping just the idea of something dying? I can imagine that there were some very difficult conversations for those leaders of Kodak to have when they suddenly realized what we became famous for, we now have to move away from. And I imagine it probably took about 10, 15 years of a very small slithery slep down a slope to, to, to keep doing that from there when the ultimate decision might have been, let's cut it after two years and move on. It's a very... Mm. I find those I find that considering what those three fears are driving in a choice may actually be something that a leader can start to unlock because if they talk to it, help people feel that they're not going to be abandoned from the organization, help people see that the results have driven by this, what was in your control, what was out of control. So people recognize that the failure might not have been at their plate. Where does the leader start to look at their own activity in there? Derry, by your own admission, you say if you bring a new toy into the mix and you don't pay attention to the old toys that they were playing there, what impact does that have on the business? Well, and we all do it. I do it in my business, Jamie. I know you do it in yours too, right? We all look at a new opportunity and maybe forget to honor the past ones. Maybe that tuning up of honoring the past is another possible solution a leader can start to spend time on that appreciates, although their story might have moved on, the organization hasn't and needs to be brought along on the journey. Just some thoughts. There's a lot of lot of interesting pieces there. When you were talking about the kind of Kodak moments and the, the stopping things on that scale, like a, a true shift in business strategy and business prioritization, I think often part of the fear of death there is the the death of the paradigm that someone is using to make sense of their entire organizational approach. And like for a Kodak or a Blockbuster or these famous examples of the market having moved on for people, I think it's so hard for leaders to get their heads around the fundamental paradigm shift that's happening that their entire structure and framework for which they understand their organization in is no longer true or won't be true in the near future mm-hmm. and that's a very difficult thing to to believe that the status quo is not what the status quo has always been and there are there are various tools that can help people through that that we probably won't go into detail now but the the very simple level that the consulting firms all use is situation complication question and framing out the context that you're in the complication and the thing that's changing the opportunity or the threat and therefore what is the question we really need to be asking ourselves to respond appropriately to that and that question might involve starting things and it might involve stopping things but it definitely involves doing things because the backdrop is changing that you in in what you understand that's a very simple version there's a more uh sophisticated tool called wardley maps which is about plotting the evolution of an industry and a set of tools and how you can identify where things are going so that you can respond appropriately. And that often leads people to making better stop, start, continue type decisions as well. So I highly recommend people go and look at Wardley Maps if you want to get sophisticated on this stuff. 
Um, yeah, that death of a paradigm, I think, is is very is very interesting. Got one question that comes to mind as I hear this. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why it might be more likely we go for something new, and a whole bunch of explanations of potential drivers on why we might find it difficult or we would avoid um, focusing on the effort required to shut something down. So how often do you need to do it? How often do you need to take that moment to pause, to go, is everything that we're doing right now the stuff that really matters? And do we have, do we have enough time for everything that we're currently doing? Is there a, is there a routine that we could suggest or a frequency or maybe a trigger event where getting into a practice around that, that might be helpful. For me, there are probably a few business processes that can support, can have as part of it, a framework to do that. Things like an annual business review, uh, average, you know, uh, three year business planning, one year business planning, uh, you could look at a quarterly thing to do some minor course correction type stuff. They might give space to just pay attention to those things for people. I sense, Derry, you've got something a little bit more uh, uh, timely in your locker that, that might support. No, very much aligned, actually. I, I'm, I'm partly I'm smiling because we actually had our, uh, within my team, we had our quarterly business review this morning. Um, <laughs> Wonderful time, and it's a it's a discipline that we're starting to put in place, uh, loosely based on uh, EOS, the Entrepreneurial Operating System, where they have this concept of rocks. And actually, the visual concept around that is quite helpful. You know, the you've probably seen these videos where someone has a jar, and they have rocks, and they have smaller pebbles, and they have sand. Right, and you've got to choose the right order to put these things into the jar because if you put the sand in first, all the little things that distract you every day you then can't get the rocks in and the idea of the rocks is they're the big things that really matter so that that he calls these things rocks because those are the small number of major priorities that you should be focused on and actually in um in our quarterly business review this morning i said right these are the four rocks we had for the last quarter. Here's where we've got to on each of them. Here's what I'm proposing we focus on for the next quarter. And one of those was a as a continuation of one of the things from the last quarter. Two of them were new things within there. And there's an implicit piece there, although actually I didn't state it explicitly, that the others are stopping now. And actually, uh, reflecting on this conversation, I'm going to go back to the team, so just to be really <laughs> clear. The, the other things are, are done as good as they're going to get and we're stopping them and we're focusing on these other things because that's the other thing you find is people just carry on tinkering with the thing they're comfortable in sometimes and things don't get stopped. And I was challenged in this quarterly business review by our non-exec director and she said, we've gone through all the numbers for recent trading. We've gone through your forecasts. And then you've suddenly flipped and said, these are the three things we're prioritizing and you haven't joined the dots as to the why. Why are those things important? How do they fit into the overall strategy? And then you've asked us, are these the right things? And we can't answer that question because you haven't joined the dots for us. So that kind of planning exercise and prioritization exercise, and there are various tools you can use to prioritize what the right things are, but 
setting those right things in the context of a strategic plan. And I think it depends on the scale of the organization that you're operating in and the and how long it takes to get projects done. But if you're in a relatively smaller business that can get stuff started and finished on a quarterly cycle, then I think that's the right cadence in the context of a one-year plan, in the context of a multi-year vision and strategy, however many years makes sense for the industry that you're in, three to five would be pretty typical. This sets the kind of direction, but doesn't prescribe too much. And then in my view, getting right down to the simplest weekly cadence of stop, start, continue discussions. I guess one of the, the simplest, most practical tools is when you have a team meeting once a week, what should we stop? What should we start? What should we continue doing? Get feedback from the team. And that doesn't apply. That's not major projects. That's micro behaviors. But micro behaviors become bloat as well. Mm. Let's stop putting meetings in for conversations that don't need to be meetings. Let's stop creating new Slack channels. Let's... Mm. Delete Let's, some old Slack channels. When was the last time anyone deleted an historical Slack channel or WhatsApp yeah. channel? Yeah. So I think there's a these types of conversations are necessary on multiple different timescales, but they've got to be appropriate to the timescale. So you don't want to have a weekly conversation about your full year priorities and second guessing yourself. You don't even want to have a quarterly, a, a, a weekly conversation about your quarterly priorities. Because you've agreed that those are the things you're going to do. You do them for a quarter and you learn from them, would be my view. I've got another thought that came up earlier and then I forgot it and I've remembered it again when Graham was talking. So I think one of the reasons that people struggle to stop things is because they define success in the wrong way. So this idea of fail fast, Mm -hmm. the reason that Zuckerberg at Facebook has a fail fast thing, move fast and break things mantra, and that that has become a mantra across tech and startup world is because they're all all in on the concept of the lean startup and minimum viable product concept of we make something, we test it, and we learn from it, and we iterate, and we iterate, and we iterate. And... I think in bigger organizations, in more traditional organizations, not enough people are saying, we're going to start this thing and our primary goal here is to learn something. Often it's, we're going to do this thing because it's going to generate X financial return. It's going to save us this money. It's going to win these new customers. It's going to increase average revenue per user. Whatever the metric is, it's almost always financial and it's almost always a benefits case that says, it's worth us investing here because there's going to be a financial return. And if you've got that metric and you haven't yet achieved that financial return, it's really hard to stop something. Back to the sunk cost fallacy I was talking about earlier. If you can frame something new as the primary goal of this is to learn learn something, and then we'll stop if we've learned that the best thing to do is to stop, I think it becomes much, much easier. I had, again, like for my business, I had this, uh, I made a decision at the start of this year to invest some money in a in testing cold email prospecting to potential clients. And I went into that very consciously saying, 
my, this will be successful if I learn that this doesn't work for my clients. Mm. And I've spent the money and I know I've given it the best shot using an expert to help me. And if the the worst case scenario, which will still be successful, is I've learned that this doesn't work. Mm. Best case scenario, I get a positive return and I've learned a bunch of stuff and then I can uh, systematize that set of activities to continue doing it. But because I went in with the mindset of the worst case scenario here is I learned something, it's then easy to stop if I have to. Now, in this case, it's worked and I'm going to carry on. But if it hadn't worked, I wouldn't be going well, I have to keep doing cold email because I've invested time in cold email and I haven't yet got a return. So I've got to keep trying until I get a return because otherwise I'm a failure. Because Mm -hmm. I can't be a failure because all I've said is I'm going to learn something. That's my definition of success. I wonder how easy that is to go in with that mindset in bigger organizations. I think it's pretty difficult, actually. I think in new organizations, it's a lot easier. Because that can be set as kind of the way of working from the outset. For traditional businesses, I think that's a lot harder. I was actually going to see if we wanted to have a little play with a theoretical scenario, actually, and just see where we take it. Uh, Derry's smiling like, where's he going now? Um, Right, so we're the leaders of Starbucks. Starbucks, uh, you know, as we know, is one of the contributing factors to a revolution in the coffee industry in and, uh, Graham, just for your context i'm smiling now because we in one of the training courses that we run we use starbucks as a case study hey excellent. i'm wondering if you're going to the same place but anyway yeah let's see on. where we go so i was just going to say we're sitting in a meeting and we re- we see data that tells us our cash cow model because let's be honest it's a pretty established model now that 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 model is at risk how are we going to remove our organizational bloat? And where where are we in Starbucks evolution? What is the cash cow model at this, the point in time? You're uh, for me, they've got they've got an established framework of businesses that work all around the world. It's a franchise model, as we know, um, in some countries, and they own some in others. And people can access Starbucks coffee in pretty much every country in the world, bar a few, right? Um, we know it's a you can walk into most Starbucks other than the ones in Italy where they've made them all a little bit more refined for the for the connoisseurs of coffee that Italians are. But generally speaking, the template for a Starbucks coffee shop is the same. And you can get different flavors and different styles and different ways. And you can bespoke them and you can pick up some additional food and all those things from there. Right. It's pretty set. So I suppose we were replicating the version, the coffee version of the the Kodak moment, right? We know that that model is working. It's keeping investors happy. But something somewhere changes that means that that's at risk. How would, what would we need? What is our organizational bloat and how would we shift it? Hmm. Um, are we assu- are we assuming? By the way, a couple of questions. Are we assuming that we are all aware of what the thing is that's changed? Yes. So we're all there's aware. A downturn, of- there's a downturn in people's love of coffee. Let's let's just call it that. So, 
in terms of organizational bloat, you're thinking things like we have a whole bunch of franchise agreements and retail yeah. space and uh, a brand that's based around a certain customer experience yeah. and an addiction to the profit that has historically come from that estate and that product set. Yeah. Where have we got to go as leaders that traditionally people don't go? I'm struggling slightly with this because I can't help but think of it like a strategy consultant, <laughs> <laughs> which is not necessarily how most leaders would. Hmm. I think, I mean, from just a spontaneous response, because I'm as you, a bit like Derry, I'm slightly struggling to get my head around. So, what does this mean then? Um, I think if if I was to say, where did the leaders of that organisation need to go? They've got to go into into a situation where they've got to imagine what are the potential outcomes of this direction of travel and what do we want to now achieve? Do we want to say our time has been gone, now it's time to shut down? And actually, Jamie, I'd go before that, the leaders of that organisation have to be receptive to that conversation. Hmm. Whatever that conversation is and the conversation you just outlined sounds eminently sensible. Let's... And, you know, I talked about this framework earlier of situation complication question, or there's a million different analytical frameworks you could use and a ton of data you could look at, et cetera, et cetera. And none of that will achieve anything unless people are in the mindset of, we need to have this conversation. And leaders have to be in the mindset of being open to that conversation and open to considering that the story they're telling themselves has changed or is wrong and that another story could be possible and that there's enough enough that's tangible about that other story that it's worth spending some time on so i guess the question really is how do you get people to engage in that conversation about the world shifting around them which is the nature of a paradigm shift you know but when you if anyone's read thomas kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions the way that scientific thinking shifts is not everybody suddenly realizes when once they get exposed to a new idea that that new idea is correct it takes a it's it's a long slow process of early adopters testing stuff out and being prepared to change and then there's a dramatic change when the balance shifts and that's what we call the paradigm shift and kuhn coined the phrase paradigm leaders are the same if an organization that needs to change what it's doing what it's prioritizing and stop a bunch of things it often follows a paradigm shift model so it's that mindset piece you need i guess where i'm going to noodle this through is you need to have enough early adopters who are open to the idea of doing something different to invest time to build a case that then convinces the others that something needs to be done differently to clear some of the bloat that then allows them to move in a different direction. Whilst Jamie's thinking, you've just sparked off for me the idea, Derry, that leaders might need to look at their own insecurities about the risks at life. You know, are they worried about losing their salary? Because it might mean oh, yeah. if the business goes that they lose what they've had and the lifestyle that they've earned themselves or 
become accustomed to and that has to change and for some people that's a really difficult conversation to even get close to so they act in a way that's about protecting what they individually have rather than experiencing what might be possible or the next moment that comes I mean, that's exactly what happened with Blockbuster and Netflix was Blockbuster were addicted to their high margins and unable to give them up in exchange for a low margin rental slash rental business that was going to turn into a streaming business. Mm. Um, they were addicted to the money, basically. And, Same and thing went, with the music industry. Yeah. Spotify's come along and they hate it. The traditional record labels hate it because it's challenged their core business model and their power and their control. Same thing, actually, when I was working with uh, Royal Mail and they were under threat from Amazon. And it was around the time Amazon was launching its own Sunday delivery service because that's what customers wanted. And the Royal Mail response to that wasn't to figure out a way to launch a Sunday delivery service. It was to go to the regulator and say, you've got to stop them doing this Mm. to protect our margins. And, you know, didn't work very well because that's not what customers wanted. Um, so I do, I do think, and I think there's a danger here though, right? So there's a danger that we could say, well, the best, the way to be a conscious, adaptive, flexible leader is to constantly be looking at the story you're telling yourself and thinking about whether you need to change things. And that can tie yourself up in knots and actually that can lead to this problem we started talking about which is starting too many things because if you're constantly looking for the shiny new thing and saying well maybe what we're doing isn't right you're in real danger of not staying the course when you have to stay the course and i guess the art here for leaders is to say when is it the right moment to change direction and do something new and stop what we've been doing and when is it the right moment to see it through robustly and get to a finish and then learn from it. And, 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 and great, Graham, going back, yeah. So thanks, Derek, because actually I think there is a balancing act here. There's a kind of dependence, codependence of, or interdependence of the evidence versus the time. And is, is the evidence showing a pattern that's going to go one direction or is it just simply a cycle that we're experiencing? But, so I, I get get that bit. I guess the question that Graham asked: If a system has the evidence, i.e., the, the the leaders of this organisation has the evidence that suggests there's an irreparable change in the direction of travel, which means their historic business model is no longer going to work, what's the bloat that you've got to be careful of? What I'm therefore think, sort of deriving from the conversation is: There's an outside and inside version of that. There's what is the bloat that's kind of causing the business model to fail? And what's my story that is kind of holding that in place, me as a leader, an owner of part of the business or whatever it might be, and my desire not to stop things because of what I might lose? And you've got to, therefore, the answer is you've got to look at both the inside and the outside because the bloat could exist in both places and the bloat will manifest itself differently. But the inside bloat, the I've got this, I'm terrified of losing it, might force you or might actually drive you to not let go of a business that is destined for a car crash. And actually not being open to, have we really tested the evidence? Because I'm not prepared to face the truth. Um, Can also 
um, undermine the situation, namely that I'm so addicted to one thing, which is outside great margins, etc. I can't I can't see beyond see beyond that, even if there is some evidence that there's a shift in buying dynamics and the change in technology and so on and so forth. So there's a so there's got to be as a leader um, some real self awareness in those moments. How much of what we're seeing is outside of us, and how much of my own internal story is helping me see that clearly? And is everybody around the table aware that there's two versions of this that might get in the way of us making a choice here that's good for the business, for our customers, stakeholders, shareholders, blah blah blah, and us? Is that what you get? Was that what you were thinking, Graham? I wasn't thinking anything. Just thought I'd share the conversation, <laughs> to be honest, and just see if it sparked off some thoughts. I, I look where you both have gone. I really do. Um, and I think those are really relevant things that leaders need to create the space to think about. I think mm. it's great to have an idea of a timescale that you could ask the question, but it's not necessarily a timescale where you always have to take action because the evidence mm. may not present action needing to be taken to reduce the amount of light. Um, and, I, and I feel like what we've, we've potentially helped people see here is that the idea of taking away from something is just as powerful as adding to something mm. and approaching that with a positivity that it can all each creates opportunity is, is quite powerful for a leader in a business. Uh, and I think what we've also um, said, unless you've just, unless me, this is me listening to respond without necessarily really fully absorbing it. So forgive me if I do this. The building of the muscle to pay attention to not just letting things drift away because that's easier or because it doesn't force me to confront a fear or an anxiety I might have about abandonment, failure, whatever it might be. That building of the muscle to say, I will pay just as much attention to what we can when we need to shut down, switch off, learn from and dis dispose of as I, as my tendency draws me towards what I get excited by, which is the shiny new stuff. I have to develop that muscle. I have to, have to make it okay for us all in my team, in our business to put adequate time, if not a balance of time into where's the shiny new stuff, where's the stuff we no longer need. And when doing that, where's the stuff we no longer need? What's the external and internal story about it? And I would make the case that the reason for doing that, or one of the reasons for doing that, is you don't learn anything from the shiny new stuff, at least at first. The stuff that you decide needs to stop, if you just let it peter away and you stop paying attention to it, you're also not learning anything from it. So if you even if you really want to do the shiny new stuff, you'll be much better at the shiny new stuff if you take the time to learn everything you can from the thing that is not working for whatever reason it's not working. Otherwise, you're going to start the shiny new thing and it might fail for the same reason if the reason is our organization doesn't like shiny new things, for example. Yeah. Which brings me to another point. I just wanted to bring this back to the golden age of leadership. And we're talking about people who are 25 to 40 in the relatively early throes of their leadership. I have a hypothesis that for those people, it is significantly harder to get things stopped in their organization than it might be for 
more for people towards the other end of their career. And the reason that it's much harder is those people at the other end of their careers are often in the senior positions and they're often in the senior positions because they put a lot of these things in place. And if you come along and say, we need to stop, we need, we need to get rid of you know, retail outlets for our coffee business. At first, you're going to get laughed out of the room. Mm. It brings me back to the paradigm shift mentality. So maybe actually as someone in that golden age of leadership, in order to make things work, not only do you have to have this openness to the possibility that the story might have changed, but you really need to foster that skill set around how do I convince other people that the story has changed enough that they need to let go of their pet projects, the things that they put in place 10 years ago, the all of the sunk cost that's gone into that and the things that have built their careers. Mm. We'll go, we talked about sport a little bit on this podcast, right? Clive Woodward took England rugby team to the World Cup back in 2003. And a few years later, he was coach of the British and Irish Lions. And he went back to everything that had worked for him and the exact players that had worked for him when he coached England to the World Cup and was a total failure because he hadn't adapted to that different set of circumstances and the different story and the way that those players had changed. He was like, well, this is what's worked for me before, so I'm going to keep doing it. And he'd failed to adapt as a leader and was unsuccessful as a result. And I think that if you're in that golden age of leadership, particularly towards the earlier stages of it, this is going to be really difficult. And building building the skills to prove that stopping things and learning from them is valuable and to convince others that stories have changed and things need to stop, I think could be hugely important to actually getting stuff stopped and getting rid of bloats that you've not necessarily created, you've just walked into. There's a phrase that comes to mind, and I can't remember where I first heard this, but it's certainly not me that made it up. I can't take the credit for this. Hold on tightly and let let go lightly. And that stopping muscle is one where you've been holding on tightly because you had a sense of purpose. You really believe in it. You threw everything at it that was necessary until such time as the external, the internal story, the evidence on whatever cycle you review these things said okay now's its time and you've been able to galvanize um, awareness of that and surface those internal external stories so you just go right i'm let go lightly now it's time okay. to go i think to build on that external internal thing what i'm talking about is in theory the external factors are the same for all the decision makers in your organization i mean not pure not purely but if we're talking about strategic decisions, the external factors should be broadly the same. The internal factors will vary significantly from individual to individual. And in general, the people who've been there longest will have a stronger set of internal holds on the status quo than the people who've come in relatively newer to that organization or relatively newer into their careers. And there might well, the really tricky thing is there might well be really good reasons why the person that's been there for 30 years has a strong hold on those ideas because maybe they've tested a million things and learned that they don't work and that this is the best way. But in order to 
if the story has genuinely changed in order to loosen their internal grip on those ideas if you need to bring more of that the external story and external data and proof points etc to convince them that the world has changed and that fundamentally i guess is the nature of a paradigm shift mm. yeah yeah and i you spark off the idea for me there derry that leaders really need to pay attention to how they influence the world around them and how they build up the organization and reputational collateral to be able to have that influence carry weight in the decision because like you say if some 24 year old whippersnapper walks into the board and says oi you lot everyone's got off coffee <laughs> they yeah. can turn around well I've still got three cups in my hand and this joe tastes amazing so, so if, I, if I were to actually going around on all of this, and there's a whole bunch of different practical tools out there ah. for prioritizing things, you know, there's frameworks like, we're, I'm sure we could rattle off a bunch, like <laughs> the Eisenhower uh, importance versus urgency, two by two. There's a concept called ICE, which is uh, impact, confidence, and ease of implementation to prioritize things. The thing that actually is popping up for me, because influencing people is so important, is this co the concept of being trusted within your organization. Mm -hmm. So, and the kind of foundational thing for that, for me, comes from David Meister, who's a consulting bigwig. He wrote a book called The Trusted Advisor, and he has a thing called The Trust Equation, which says trustworthiness is a function of credibility, reliability, emotional intimacy, and low self-orientation. And if you're the young 25-year-old 20, just got into a leadership position and you want to convince people, you've got to massively over-index on the credibility or no one's going to listen to you. And I also think they have to massively tune down their level of self-orientation because yeah. a lot of those leaders are coming in saying, I want to be a big wig in this game. And a lot of those yeah. senior leaders just say, you're not doing this for the business. You're doing it for you and your career progression. So you need to actually rein that in yeah, quite significantly in order to tune up a your colleague's ability to recognize your credibility and those other things from there. Like yeah. You've gone to some good places today. So as a young leader in an organization, you've got a, as a young leader in an organization, one of the big things to focus on is being trusted by the senior decision makers if you want to influence major changes around stopping and starting things. Mm. Jamie, what's your practical tip for people wrestling with how to stop things more? Well enough, um, the simplest of the tools that you, you talked about, which is the stop, start, continue. Starting to build a routine um, in just about any kind of forum when you are taking on a leadership role around on the agenda periodically. We're going to get into the practice of is there anything right now that we need to think about reflecting on for the last month quarter whatever it is where we feel stop start continue anything anything on the plate everybody's got the opportunity to bring something forward not least because if it, if, it, if it becomes a a habit that we're kind of keeping our eyes open for anything that's no longer seemingly adding value which could then be that emotional distraction reputational thing that suggests nothing ever really changes around here and and start to continue to refresh that muscle 
um, when it comes to the bigger choices of stop this business line, extract yourself from this country, cut off this team, stop the merger, whatever it might be, it's not the first time you've had that kind of dialogue. But you've got it, you've got to recognize that tendency is not to, a tendency is to go towards the light, the future, the shiny thing. And therefore, you've got to find a way of building at least some kind of muscle and get into that practice of having those kinds of conversations. Otherwise, the first time you do it, if it's something really important, it's going to be really tough. Yeah, agreed. And I'd also add, like, those conversations, the stop, start, continue conversations, try and avoid all the stops just being stuff that's annoying people. Mm. Like, the stops mm. should be things that are not adding value or are distracting, not just oh, we've got too many meetings or I wish people would stop, you know, cooking fish in the microwave for lunch or whatever. Mm. But it's not just about annoying things. It's about stopping, making a conscious decision to stop major things. Yeah, I was going to say, stopping stopping something also has an outcome. So when you say, I want to stop it because this is what will happen, I, we won't be distracted by this or the smell of fish will disappear. Monitor that it's actually happened. Yeah. Graham, what about you? Have you got a practical Oh, tip? my practical one's even simpler than stop, start, continue. Make space for a conversation with like-minded people, not necessarily in your business line, potentially from other from other businesses. Have a conversation about the context. Cause that, you know, like we always talk about and feel when we record these podcasts, we always say, Oh, that sparked off a thought there. Oh, that's made me think of this. That's sent me down an avenue. Make space for that conversation because it might just trigger your awareness to something you hadn't previously seen that might help spark some of the actions that we're talking about. Nice. Nice. So we need to wrap up there, gentlemen. I feel like we could carry on talking about this stuff for a long time. But we will. So we had three major practical tips at the end there. We had have a conversation and just bounce these ideas around with somebody if you think that things need to change. Use the stop, start, continue conversations to build those muscles and the culture and the habit around actually stopping stuff and focus on building trust so that people will listen to you when you've got something to say. I think those are great practical tips, actually. Um, if you're listening and you've got other tips, let us know. Get in touch. We'd love to hear more. And we will see you all the next time. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Graham. find any of the subjects we cover in this podcast spark inspiration curiosity or concern within you do drop us a line details are in the comments below and we'll be happily there to listen and see how we can offer the best support for you mm-hmm.